Be seated. The story from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. It's quite fascinating because it's the only story we have of Jesus as a boy, a 12-year-old boy. If you want a reference point to that, you can look to my son, who's 12 years old. <laughs> Not to put him on the spot or embarrass him. During the Christmas season, of course, we reflect on the fact that Jesus came to us, the Son of God came to us as a baby. And we read stories about Jesus as a baby. But here, this is the only story we have in the Gospels of Jesus as a boy. And this story has much to tell us about who Jesus is. And we'll look at that. But I want you to um, go back in your Bibles, if you have it open, or if you want to get a pew Bible, it's under the seats, to Luke chapter 1. And I want to read to you the reason why Luke wrote his gospel, because I want to connect it to this story of Jesus as a boy. Luke wrote this gospel to somebody named Theophilus. We don't know exactly who Theophilus was, but apparently a, a convert, or obviously a convert to Christianity, perhaps a new convert to Christianity. And Luke uh, says in, well, I'll just read verses 1 through 4, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Luke was part of the circle of the disciples, a companion, and in the circle of the early followers of Jesus. So that's what he's talking about when he says, among us. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, eyewitnesses, referring there to the apostles, and ministers of the word, have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, Dr. Luke says, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. And here's the key. Why? Why are these things written for us? So that you may have certainty concerning the truth or the things that you've been taught. So that you might have certainty, solid ground, solid footing. That's the Greek word there, the connotation. It's really the Greek word is the word I think we get asphalt from. Solid ground, something rock solid, a solid place to stand so that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And I think that that's a very good um, goal for us to have at the beginning of a new year, to have certainty, to have a solid ground to stand, to have conviction, deep-rooted conviction about our faith and about who Jesus Christ is, because we don't know what the year 2015 holds for any of us. The joys, but also the sorrows, and the difficulties, and the things that will come inevitably our way, living in a fallen world. Illness, death, grief, loss, disappointment. And in the mix of that, of course, celebration and excitement. But what we need as we go throughout our days of this life is exactly what the gospel writer is saying here. We need certainty. We need a rock-solid place to stand so that the truth of who Jesus is sustains us throughout all of our days. And this passage that we read, this uh, passage of Jesus as a boy, Luke chapter 2, 
verses 41 through 52 tells us something about who Jesus is. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to be just following the gospel lectionary readings, and they offer snapshots of Jesus' life and ministry, and they reveal who Jesus is. This is Epiphany Sunday, and Epiphany is about revelation. Normally, we do the three wise men, but today I wanted to do something different. This is another option here to look at the story of Jesus as a 12-year-old boy. As I read this passage and studied it and reflected on it, one thing that struck me was just the realism of this story. Our faith is based on these scriptures. And so we have to grapple with, are these scriptures believable? Are they credible? And of course, the scriptures, the Bible's under attack today. You get all sorts of articles and different popular publications about how the Bible's not reliable or trustworthy. But as I was studying this passage, I, I just, again, was reminded of the, the credibility, the historicity, the, the believability, if you will, of this story. I want to point out some realistic, some elements of realism in this story that kind of struck me. And then we'll get to the central part of this story, which is Jesus' um, pronouncement that he must be in his father's house. But, but just some of the elements of realism that struck me here. Because um, there were stories that came later after these Gospels were written that purported to tell us about the childhood of Jesus and Jesus as a, as a little baby and as a little boy. They tried to fill in the gaps. There was one story, maybe you know, this, this is an, an apocryphal text. Again, these circulated hundreds, sometimes years after the, the Apostles. And they're not reliable. They're fanciful accounts of Jesus' uh, birth and childhood. One of these stories had Jesus as a young boy uh, creating birds out of mud, and then to impress his companions, he breathed on them and they became uh, live birds and flew away. Jesus is sort of a, a magician of sorts, using his power to impress his friends. Well, that's fantasy, that, that's, that's fantasy and, and mythical. Um, there's another story of Jesus as an infant when he was born in the manger that he set up in the manger, looked to his mother Mary and said, Mary, I am the Son of God, and laid back down. Again, these kind of stories have the, the elements of mythology and fantasy, and they aren't very credible, hard to believe. And again, they, they came a lot later than the, than the time of the apostles, so we, don't, we can just dismiss them as fanciful accounts. But Luke is, Luke is filled with really some um, striking uh, detail that's, that's realistic. Take, for example, in this story, the fact that Mary and Joseph lost track of Jesus. Mary and Joseph lost Jesus. <laughs> and Luke reports this. And if that wasn't true, why would Luke bring this out? Kind of an embarrassing fact about the mother of our Lord Jesus. But it's also very realistic. I can tell you that as a father of five, to lose track of your kids. And especially what happened here was they were caravanning, it seems, to Jerusalem with family and friends. And when you have your kids together with a lot of other kids, I can tell you as a parent, you just sort of let the kids go off on their own. And it's happened to us. I remember a couple of uh, summers ago, we were with Josie's sister, Rosie, and she has five kids, and our five kids were together at my in-law's house, Bob and Linda, who are with us here today. And um, that summer, we, we had a couple of, uh, I guess, a week together or so at their house with all ten kids. 
And there was one day uh, after about, you know, it was in the afternoon, I looked up and I said, where's Naomi? <laughs> I haven't seen her all day. They've just, you know, we just kind of let the kids go off. And, uh, and so we panicked, much like uh, Mary and Joseph, they were in their distress looking for Jesus. And uh, we felt that that day, we, we looked around the house, we couldn't find her. We looked outside and started doing a search of the neighborhood. And I had visions of, you know, me being on TV saying, you know, <laughs> child is lost. I'm a bad parent. But we found her curled up on a couch in a corner with a blanket kind of tucked in that way. But I just bring that up because this strikes me as very realistic. Um, verse 44, his, his, his parents did not know that he, was in the, he stayed behind, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. The group of what? The group of relatives and, and acquaintances. They, they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. must have been a very large group. In, the, in those days, they traveled together just made sense to do that for protection and provision. So that seems very realistic to me. And then there's another uh, element of, of Jesus' boyhood here that just strikes me as very realistic, and that is Luke brings out the fact that he grew, that he grew like a normal child, like a normal boy. Uh, you see that in verse 52, 52. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And then the passage just before this, the verse just before this passage, rather, verse 40, and the child grew. He grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Luke wants us to understand that Jesus was a real man, and before that he was a real boy. He wasn't a superhuman. He was human. He was fully human. And Jesus, as a little Jewish boy, would have, think about this, it's fascinating to think about it as I study this week, Jesus would have learned Scripture from his father. The father, Joseph, of course, in the Jewish household, the father was tasked. It was his duty to teach their children Scripture. And it started right away, as soon as the little boy could speak, he would, he would start learning Scripture from his father's lips. And the emphasis was on memory, which I think would be a good emphasis today. Uh, for children learning Scripture. The emphasis was on getting it in the heart and the mind of the child. And the first thing that he would be taught was the Shema, the creed of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Jesus would have been taught that in the home. And then as he got a little bit older, 5 and 6, guess what? He would have been sent off to school. He would have been sent off to synagogue school. And there the rabbi would teach him. And he probably, in those days, the rabbi would sit on the floor. Imagine little Jesus sitting on the floor and the rabbi teaching them Scripture along with the other children. And then as he got older, he could engage in sort of the deeper things of uh, theology and the rabbinical uh, studies. So Jesus, of course, we know as he, he grew and, and, and he learned a trade, he learned to be a carpenter. I like what the writer Joseph Bailey says in his, in his writing called A Psalm to a God-Man. Listen to what Joseph Bailey says. This is a, a psalm of thank you to Jesus. He says, I thank you that you were a real man and before that a real boy. It hurt when you were planing wood and got a splinter under your nail. You felt it when a stone got stuck in your sandal. You had to shake it out, just like anybody else. And then Joseph Bailey, he ends this, this prayer to Jesus. He says, I adore you because you who bore my sins know what it's like to have a splinter under your nail and to die on the cross. Jesus was fully human. 
and he grew in wisdom and favor and in stature. He is God with us. He is Emmanuel. He's entered into human experience. He understands. He's been there. And so we can go to him knowing that he's a God who has been with us and has lived the human life in every way except for sin. So uh, I find it very realistic that Jesus grew. And then there's one other mark of realism here I want to point out, and that is the lack of understanding on the part of Joseph and Mary gets mentioned here, doesn't it? That they really didn't understand fully their own son, who Jesus was, or exactly what was going on. And again, I don't think Luke would have mentioned this unless it was true. Um, I think Mary is the one who gave him this information. It says here that Mary treasured these things up and she pondered them in her heart. Luke, we know, was associated with the circle of the disciples and the family of Jesus. So most historians think, and Luke says at the very beginning of the gospel, that he has made an investigation. So how did he investigate the life of Jesus? Well, he talked to the uh, eyewitnesses. He was part of their circle and he probably interviewed Mary, the mother of our Lord. And she's probably the one who told Luke this story and said, we didn't quite get it. We didn't quite understand exactly what was going on with our son, Jesus. And so Luke says that after Jesus says um, in verse 49, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Why didn't they understand? I mean, Looking back on this, of course, we have the full story, but they're living in the middle of the story. Yes, they had been told by the angel that Jesus would be the Messiah. Yes, they had been told that he was, in the case of Joseph, the Son of God. But even understanding what the Son of God meant in the Jewish context at this time was difficult. Because we'll see this next week, and we'll delve a little bit more deeper into Jesus' identity as the beloved Son of God at his baptism. That phrase had a a, a connotation of being the Messiah. And we know that there was confusion about even what the Messiah was about and Jesus' role as Messiah. So the parents are trying to put all this together. Let's give them a break. And it's 12 years later since the angel has come to them and they're still trying to figure out. They know Jesus, God has a role for his, his life and that he's going to be a savior, the savior from sin, but they're still trying to put all the pieces together. But Luke, and my point is, Luke does not paper over this. Luke does not dismiss this. Luke brings this out, and it has the real texture, the texture of real history. He wants us to know the truth about who Jesus and uh, what Jesus did and who Jesus really is. And that brings us to the central verse. This is the crux of the, the passage. This is the main point of the passage. That Jesus had a special relationship with God and he knew himself to be, at a very early age, the Son of God. Look at what he says in verse 49. And he said to them, his parents, why were you looking for me? I don't think that he said that defensively. I don't think he was being accusatory here. I think it was a genuine question. Why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Don't you know... Mom and dad, at this point in my life, where my heart is, where my mind is, where my focus is, what my priority is, it is to be with my heavenly Father and to do His will 
that he has sent me to do. And so this is kind of a summary of the entire mission of Jesus. It is to know God and to do the will of God. Why he was sent here was to accomplish his Father's will. We see in this passage of Scripture, Jesus is longing to be with his Father. We see his knowledge of the Scripture. His, he, he amazed, he astonished these teachers of the law. He had a longing to know God. God was stirring in his life in a unique way. He was sitting in the temple uh, among the teachers, verse 46 tells us, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and answers. They were just literally amazed there means they were kind of beside themselves. They were displaced is the Greek word. They were jarred because here was a 12-year-old boy who's at the center of Jewish religion. He's at the height of the rabbinical university. He's at Princeton, Yale, and Harvard, okay, dealing with those kind of people. And the depth of his knowledge and insight and the questions that he was asking amazed them. This is no ordinary boy. He's fully human, but Luke wants us to know Jesus is no ordinary boy. He is the divine Son of God. And Jesus says later in his ministry, and here's why it matters, if you want to know God the Father, look to the Son. Luke chapter 10, he begins to bring this teaching out. To know the Father, you need to know the Son. Be connected to God, you need to be connected to me. And if you're connected to me, you can have the assurance that you're connected to God. If you've seen me, if you reflect on who I am, if you take me into your life, then the life of God is in your life. You can have that certainty. You can have that assurance. We live at a time where people will say, this is man on the street reflection when it comes to religion. You can't know the truth. It's arrogant to claim that you know the truth about God. Isn't that something you've heard? Isn't that in the air? Uh, the, the popular metaphor, the popular analogy to make this point is from Hinduism is that we're all blindfolded and we're all touching an elephant in a pit. You've heard this, haven't you? We're all blindfolded, we're touching an elephant in a pit and we're just grabbing different parts. Somebody has a trunk and says God is like the trunk. Somebody says, has the tail and says God is like the trail. None of us have tail. None of us have the whole picture. And so we should just be very reticent to say we really know God. We're just groping in the dark and feeling our own way and describing our own experience. That presupposes that the person who is creating this myth sees everything, right? They see the elephant. They see everybody. They're telling everybody else what's going on. But the New Testament says, no, God in Jesus Christ has taken off the blindfold. And if you really want to know what God is like, look to the Son. And real humility is to receive the revelation that He's given. It's in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we have credible reasons to believe and to be certain that Jesus Christ is who the Scriptures claim He is. This is no mythology. This is not fanciful accounting here. This is real history. History with a theological point, but history nonetheless. And so we have reason to believe, as Luke wants us. You know, when it comes to religious certainty, I, w I want to um, just close with this teaching, this, this analogy that John Henry Newman 
uh, taught. I think I've mentioned this before, but I find it very helpful. Again, we live in a skeptical age. We live in a time where people say you, you, you can't have certainty about these things. But what John Henry Newman said is when it comes to religious certainty, you have to think of it like this. You have to think of it like a cable. A cable is made of strands. And that's what gives it strength. And when you think of the Christian faith, there are strands of knowledge of Jesus Christ that taken together strengthen us and give us certainty. So one strand is the intellectual strand. We can know something about the truth of Jesus through the study of Scripture. We can know something about God through the use of our reason. Some people are prone to to kind of intellectual reasons, and they study philosophy and come to a conclusion that the existence of God is reasonable and that Jesus Christ is God's Son. That's a reasonable um, statement. So there's the the, the strand of the intellect, and there's the strand of experience. We experience the presence of Jesus, sometimes in very significant and powerful ways, through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the presence of of Jesus in the sacraments, through um, prayer, we can experience the presence of Jesus. So the experiential dimension, that's another strand in this cable of certainty. And then there is the, the moral strand, there is the of Jesus, the moral influence of Jesus, how he makes people better and cultures better, and we've seen that in our lives, hopefully, and we've seen that, hopefully, in the lives of others. These strands, we could mention others, taken together, make a very solid basis, something to hang on to, and Newman says we can call that religious certainty. But the problem is, in our culture today, people say, I don't want a cable I want an iron rod of certainty. I'll have nothing less than an iron rod of certainty. I want mathematical proof. But that's not how it works because we're dealing with a person. In personal relationships, it's not about mathematical proof. It's about getting to know the person and trusting the person. And Newman said, uh, if, if, if somebody who says, I need an iron rod of certainty, if somebody who says... For example, that if, if this bridge is suspended by a cable, I'm not going to walk on it. I'll only take an iron rod. And that actually is unreasonable. The point is that God has revealed in the pages of Scripture enough for us to trust. Yes, there's still questions. Enough for us to trust that Jesus is the very Son of God. And when we know Him and when we're connected to Him, that gives us assurance confidence, and will hold us through the days to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these these stories that have been preserved for us, careful account that Luke made, this fascinating story of your son as a boy who already knew at this tender age that he was unique, that you had a mission for him to accomplish and that he um, trusted you and followed you to win our salvation. We're so grateful, Lord Jesus, that you laid down your life for us and that you are alive and you're present with us even now through the work of the Holy Spirit. Help us each and every day in this new year to grow in the grace and knowledge of you, Lord Jesus Christ. We pray. Amen. Amen.